First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. You know, when you see that uh, little video uh, there on identity theft, uh, I don't know how many of you have uh, ever been uh, the victim of actual identity theft. Uh, I know for a long time, the only place I'd really hear about someone taking someone else's identity, you know, was in a spy movie, right, where they'd print up false passports and documents to be able to get on a plane and, and get out of the country. But, but then many years ago, you started hearing about identity theft everywhere, a growing uh, problem. You started seeing some of these companies pop up like LifeLock, right, where you can, for a subscription each month, uh, they will try to guard your uh, account and, and help you deal with it if, if your ID is, is hacked. Of course, I always heard about those uh, companies and that protection, and I thought, you know, well, I'm not uh, 007, and uh, I'm not Jason Bourne. I, I don't think anybody probably wants to take uh, my identity from me. And, you know, I, th- I thought that all, all the way until one day I-, I was going through my bills, and I came across a bill uh, from Kay's Jewelers. Uh, and I thought, well, that's interesting because uh, I haven't, you know, bought anything from Kay's Jewelers, but I, I opened up that bill, and... Um, had my name on it, had my address on it. Uh, apparently, I had bought something from Kay's Jewelers, and I had bought it uh, up in New Jersey. And uh, I hadn't just bought uh, a little bit of jewelry from Kay's Jewelers. I, I had bought $7,000 worth of jewelry from Kay's Jewelers. I, I told my wife, Megan, it was uh, a ring I got from my secret New Jersey wife that I keep up in the north, and uh, she didn't think that was very funny. But um, Thankfully, I was able to, uh, you know, to deal with that, to, to prove that it wasn't me, that I wasn't uh, responsible for those, those uh, charges. But you know, it doesn't feel too good uh, to have someone take your identity like that. But you know, in reality, church, and I, I'm convinced of this, that many, many Christians have had their identity taken from them and they do not even realize it. That many believers have allowed the world to steal their identity simply because they do not understand the fullness of who they really are in Jesus Christ. And that's heartbreaking because when we don't understand who we are in Christ, well, then we are susceptible to all of the enemy's schemes. We're easily blown about by every wind of doctrine, by all the whims of this world, because we're not secure in who we are in him. But this letter in our Bibles that we call Ephesians is all about our identity in Jesus Christ. I'm excited about the next few months as we're going to walk through this letter verse by verse and have the chance to talk about our identity in Christ and and, and then also how God has called us to live out that identity in this world. Now, the letter to the Ephesians is only 155 verses long. You you can read it in about uh, 15 or, or 20 minutes time. And yet, despite its relatively short length, I love what commentator Klein Snodgrass has said about it. He said, quote, pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document in history. It has had an incredible impact on the lives of so many who have come before us. And I pray it will have an incredible impact on us 
as a church in the months to come as we read it uh, and as we study it together. Uh, My goal for this morning is a pretty modest one. Uh, Really, next week, we're going to start diving in and and, and going verse by verse through this letter. But today, I just want to introduce this book uh, for us uh, that we're going to be camping out in for the next few months. A moment ago, we heard a portion of Acts 19 read for us. That tells the story of when the Apostle Paul came to the city of Ephesus and began to do some ministry there and the incredible things that God did. We'll come back to some of that uh, in a few moments. I want us also to to consider, uh, again, his ministry there that was longer than uh, he spent anywhere else. He spent three years in the city of Ephesus. That's a longer duration of time he spent in any other city where he traveled on his missionary journeys. As we go along today, we're going to look at some of the overall themes of the entire letter uh, to the Ephesians. But I want to begin today by just reading the first two verses of Ephesians, the greeting that Paul writes to these believers. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful... In Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you today for this book in our Bibles called Ephesians. And we pray today as we begin our study that, Lord, you might speak to our hearts, Father, that we might understand more of that grace and that peace that is available to every single one of us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, as we introduce this letter today, I want us to begin by just asking a few basic questions about this book. And and the most basic question you can ask for any letter is the question, who wrote it? Who wrote it? And the answer to that question is in the very first phrase, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And so Paul tells us that he is the author of this book. Later in the book, Paul references some personal details about his life, his uh, imprisonment, Uh, He references a friend of his named Tychicus that he was sending uh, to these believers in Ephesus. And the fact that Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians was really universally regarded in the church all the way until about the late 18th century. But over the last couple hundred years, there have been numerous uh, scholars, particularly liberal scholars, who uh, have argued that Paul did not write this book, that someone else wrote it, perhaps using the pen name Paul to give them added uh, credibility. And uh, one of the arguments that they make in that regard is that uh, Ephesians seems to be too impersonal to have been written by Paul to a group of believers where he spent three years of his life. And so they use that to argue that someone else wrote the book. But I find that to be a, a very weak argument. Because most scholars believe that Ephesians was intended to be what's called an encyclical or a circular letter. It was intended to go to the church at Ephesus, but also it was intended for many of the villages and towns and perhaps even other cities that were around uh, the city of Ephesus. And if that is the case, surely he would not have known everybody, especially those who lived in those outskirts and those villages that were also receiving this letter. He also would not have known, of course, any of those who had come to faith in Christ in the seven or eight years that had elapsed since the time that Paul had ministered there in the city of Ephesus. 
Paul introduces himself very simply as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, the word apostle is sometimes used in the Bible in a very general sense to just refer to someone who is sent. Uh, And of course, in that sense, we are all apostles. We've all been sent out by God on mission. But at times in the New Testament, the word apostle is used in a more technical sense. And that's how it's used here to refer to the apostle Paul as being in the same category as the 12 disciples. The Apostle Paul, unlike any believer today, unlike any of us in this room, had seen the resurrected Christ. And he had been called, as it says here, by the will of God to serve as an apostle, to speak and to write authoritatively the very words of God and to preach the gospel. Of course, as we read this letter that Paul has written, we should never forget what an incredible miracle it is that Paul, of all people, was chosen by the will of God to be an apostle. Because we need to remember Paul's background. You might recall Paul was formerly known by the name Saul. And in the book of Acts, he's presented to us as the number one enemy of the early church, a man who literally hunted Christians down like a terrorist to have them thrown into jail, to have them persecuted. In fact, he was on his way to do that very thing on the road to Damascus when God reached down and took a hold of his life, said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord Jesus changed his heart and changed his life and transformed, transformed him from the greatest enemy of the church to the greatest missionary that the church has ever seen. And every time we read one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, we should always remember that. We should never forget his story because it reminds us of the fact that if God's love can change someone like Paul, then God's love can change anyone. His love and his grace can change you and it can change me. Well, we've talked about who wrote the letter. The second basic question is this, when and where was it written? Because Paul references his imprisonment, most believe, and I would agree that this letter was likely written during the two years that Paul spent under house arrest in the city of Rome. If you remember, the book of Acts actually ends, it has an open ending at the book of Acts, and uh, Paul is there in a rented house for two years. He's under a house arrest there. He was chained to a Roman guard, but he was given some liberty. He was allowed to have visitors come, and as people came into his house, of course, he shared the gospel with them. They were a believer. He discipled them. Apparently, at least one of the people that came to visit him served as a secretary and wrote the words down for this letter of Ephesians as Paul dictated those words. It was around the same time that Ephesians was written that the letter to the church at Colossae that we call Colossians was written. And also the letter we call Philemon was written. And those three letters were all delivered by the hand of a friend of his I mentioned before named Tychicus, who delivered those three letters to the three different destinations, including including this letter of Ephesians to the city of Ephesus. The date of writing would have been right around AD 61 or 62, just a few years before Paul was martyred for his faith in the Lord. Now, before we move on to the next question, I will just say, I think it's amazing as you read the book of Ephesians, when you remember that Paul, as he wrote this book, was chained to a Roman guard. 
As one person put it, the grand themes that you read about here in the letter to the Ephesians still have the power to take our breath away. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes in this letter some of the most amazing things that have ever been written about God's eternal plan of salvation for us. And yet he wrote these words while he was suffering personally and while he was imprisoned for years and while he was awaiting what he believed would be his certain death. And that did come just a few years after this time. You know, it's just a great reminder to us that our circumstances as believers do not determine our reality. You know, circumstances can be great one day and terrible the next, can't they? Circumstances change, they come and they go, but what determines our reality as believers is what God has done for us that can never be undone. And as we keep our focus on those things, we can have joy and we can have peace even in the midst of the hardest and loneliest times of life, even when we're chained up to a Roman guard. And we've talked about who wrote this letter. We've talked about when and where it was written. Question number three is this, who was it written to? Again, the first line of the letter answers that for us, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. This map shows us where the city of Ephesus was. It's located in modern-day Turkey, and it's there on the eastern shore of the Aegean Sea. Now, Ephesus was an extremely large city in Paul's day. It was the fourth or fifth largest city in the world. It boasted a population of around a quarter million people. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. And as such, it was an important political center, But it was also an important commercial center. It sat at the crossroads of about four different trade routes. It was an intellectual city as well. It was perhaps most known for its famous temple to the Roman goddess Diana or Artemis as she's known in Greek. That temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is all that's left of that temple today, just one single pillar. But back then in Paul's day, that temple to Artemis was believed to be four times the size of the Parthenon. Ephesus also was home to a huge theater, a theater that held upwards to 20,000 people. It was there in that Ephesian theater that Acts 19 tells us a mob of people gathered who were upset with Paul's message. They were upset with his message because of how it was affecting their idol-making business. It's amazing to read that. So many people were being saved. So many people were turning to Christ that they weren't buying as many little statues of Diana anymore. And so the silversmith guild, who were losing money on their idols that they weren't selling, was angry. And they got a mob fired up, and that mob went down and filled the, the theater there in Ephesus and The text tells us that for two hours, this mob shouted out the words over and over, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And that story in Acts 19 is a little bit of an indication of what made ministry in Ephesus so difficult. It wasn't just the size of the city, the population that would have also been overwhelming, but it was the spiritual darkness, the spiritual condition of the city. Again, they worship Diana, but not only the goddess Diana, they worship a host of other false gods. 
They worshiped the Roman emperor as divine. They worshiped money. They worshiped success. They worshiped magic and sorcery. And you see that in the story that we heard read for us of where some who turned to Christ took their magic books and burned them up in a giant bonfire. They also worshiped their own pleasure. In fact, archaeologists have unearthed a sign carved into the stone down where the ancient docks used to be that directed sailors on where they can find the nearest brothel after they got off of their ships. This was the environment that Paul walked into when he began to share the gospel in the city of Ephesus. But as I said, he stayed there for three years, longer than he stayed anywhere else. Acts 19 tells us he spent the first three months in the Jewish synagogue and he shared with the Jewish people about the Lord Jesus, how he was their promised Messiah. And some believed, but eventually some got upset with him. And so he had to leave the synagogue, but he didn't leave the city. Instead, he posted up in this place called the School of Tyrannus. It was a public assembly hall where people would teach philosophy to their students. Paul went there during the middle of the day, during the afternoon siesta time, and he would take a break from his tent-making trade. And during the hours of 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., he would teach there every day in the school of Tyrannus to those who would come, and he would share the gospel with them day after day after day. And we heard these words in Acts 19.10. It says, this continued for two years so that all who dwelled in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So again, the timeline, three months in the synagogue, two years in the school of Tyrannus, and then the text says he spent some more time there as well. All together, three years of his life. But this verse tells us the incredible impact of that ministry. That God moved in such a powerful way through Paul's years in the city of Ephesus that the gospel spilled out beyond the bounds of the city of Ephesus into the surrounding area so that either directly or indirectly, everybody who lived in that whole region of Asia heard the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. After those three years were passed and Paul left, of course, he left behind many believers, many churches in Ephesus, churches in the surrounding villages and towns, they continued living for the Lord, telling others about the Lord. And seven or eight years later, Paul writes to them this letter of Ephesians. And I love how he describes them. He addresses it to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. You know, the word saint means a holy one. And I know many believers today are not comfortable with that terminology. You wouldn't be comfortable with someone calling you a saint. In fact, you might even push back on that and say, well, I'm no saint. But, but in reality, in the New Testament, every believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. We're not saints because of our own holiness. We are saints because of Christ's holiness. We are saints because he has given us his holiness when we believed on him. We're saints because that word saint means to be set apart for God. And we have been set apart by God, by the work of the spirit of God in our lives for a specific purpose to live our lives for the Lord. And so he writes to the saints in Ephesus. But you might hear that and you might think, well, how could anyone live a holy life, the life of a saint, in a city like that, that you describe as being so unholy. And yet I would ask you, is the place that we're living today any more holy than the place where they lived? 
our culture today worships idols just like they did. Our, our idols just have different names. Our culture today worships money. Our culture worships success. Our culture is increasingly worshiping the occult. Our culture is without a doubt worshiping our own pleasure. And we've been talking these last several weeks about cancel culture, how our culture wants to cancel us and our views, biblical viewpoints, because our culture is running headlong away from the Lord. Now we live in an unholy culture as well, and yet God calls us to live as his saints here. And, and so if a letter were being written to us today, it would be addressed to the saints who live in Melbourne and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's called us to live as set-apart ones, as saints, even here, and he has given us, as we'll see in a moment, everything we need to be able to live a life that glorifies him, even where he's placed us. So far, we've talked about who wrote this book, when and where it was written from, who it was written to, and then finally, we need to ask the basic question, what does it say? What does this letter of Ephesians actually say? And of course, there's six chapters full of things that it says. And we won't have time today to walk through all of that. That's what the next several months are going to be about. But in general, you know, as you look at the whole of this letter, there's a very simple outline that many, many people have used to describe the book of Ephesians. And the book really breaks down pretty neatly into two main parts. The first part of the book of Ephesians is chapters one through three. And that part of this book is really about who we are in Christ, our Identity. That's why we've titled this series, Identity Theft. Then the second half of the book, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, are about how we, who are in Christ, should walk, should live our lives. And so the first half of the book is about our identity, and the second half of the book is about our activity. How we who are in Christ should live in a way that glorifies the Lord. And so with that simple outline in our minds, with the few minutes we have left, I, I want to just walk through quickly seven key messages for us in the book of Ephesians that we're going to study as we walk through this book together in the coming weeks. The first key message we're going to see is this. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing through the work of our triune God. You know, today we're just looking at the first two verses of chapter one, but for the next three weeks, we're going to look at the blessing that comes right after that in verses three through 14 of chapter one. And, you know, actually that's just one really, really long sentence in the Greek. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to look at one sentence, but it's a sentence that is packed full of the blessings that are ours in Christ because of what God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have done for us. Uh, you know, I don't claim to know today how everyone in this room is doing, spiritually speaking. Uh, maybe for you lately, it has been a fight to live with joy. Maybe for you, you've been going through some things lately that, that are so hard, you, you don't even know how you're going to handle the situations that you're in right now. Maybe there's some who are here today and you're, you're just tired and you need some encouragement. I want to tell you, friend, if you need some encouragement, the book of Ephesians is your book. 
because there's encouragement for you and encouragement for me in every single verse that is in this book. And and I want to encourage you as we're studying this book each Sunday, let's be reading this book also in our own personal time with the Lord. Again, there's only six chapters in the letter to the Ephesians. That means that if you just read one chapter a day, that'll just take you a, a couple of minutes. If you read one chapter a day, every day, Monday through Saturday, you'll have read through the letter to the Ephesians before we meet again next Sunday. And and what if we didn't just do that for one week? What if we did that same thing every week for the whole time that we're studying this book? What that would mean is by the time we end our study of Ephesians, you will have read through Paul's letter to the Ephesians between 15 and 20 times. I guarantee if you read through Ephesians that much, you're going to end up having some of it memorized without even trying to. And what a wonderful thing that would be to have at least some, if not even all, of the book of Ephesians hidden in our hearts during the time of our church's study. Here's the second key message in this book. We were dead in our sins, but we have been saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2 is one of the clearest summaries of the good news of Jesus that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. The chapter starts out telling us the truth, the reality that we're all dead in our sins because we've all sinned against God. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. But then we read this, we read, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses has made us alive together with Christ for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. We are not saved by doing good works. We can't be good enough to be saved. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. We're saved simply by faith, by receiving what Christ has already accomplished for us at the cross. And friend, if you're here today and you've never done that, you've never received Jesus by faith in him, I pray you would do that today. You take that step of faith and open up your heart to the Lord and what he has done for you. Here's a third key message. Even though we talked about our individual salvation, we need to remember this. God's plan is bigger than us. It is actually cosmic in its scope. Certainly we read that truth in the letter of Colossians and in Romans, but you see that truth here in Ephesians as well. You start to see it even in the first chapter, chapter one, verse 10, where Paul writes that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he, God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Later in chapter one, in verse 22, we read this, and he, God, put all things under his, under Christ's feet and gave him, gave Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, all things under his feet. We we don't have time today to unpack that further, but let's never forget that God's salvation plan is bigger than any of us individually. It includes all of the created order that is being placed under the sovereign rule of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Here's key message number four that we'll unpack more in Ephesians. We read in in these pages that a great mystery has now been revealed, that God's plan was always to make us one in the church. 
In Ephesians 3, you'll come across that word mystery used repeatedly. And in Ephesians, that word mystery doesn't mean what we might think it means. It doesn't mean something that's still a mystery or something that's still mysterious or unknown to us. Rather, what that word means in Ephesians is something that was a mystery to those who lived in Old Testament times. It was something that was hidden from their eyes, hidden from their view, but has now been made known. It's now been revealed. And what's been revealed is that God's plan was to bring all of us together, Jews and Gentiles alike, and to break down the wall of separation between us and to make us one in Jesus Christ. I know in our culture today, there are many dividing lines. People are all divided up into little groups and you're told that if you're in this group, you're not able to talk to people who are in that group. That should never be the case in the church of Jesus Christ because we are one. We have been saved into a community by the same Savior. We are his people. We are the family of God. We are a temple that is being built up on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And I love the description of of unity, the beautiful words Paul gives us of why we are one in Ephesians chapter four. You remember these words? There is therefore one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Here's key message number five. We are new people in Christ and God has given us everything we need to live like new people in every sphere of our lives. As I said earlier, when you move into that second half of Ephesians chapters four, five, and six, Paul begins to talk about how because of what Christ has done in our lives, now he has made us new people. He tells us we need to take off the old man. We need to take off the old us of how we used to live before we were saved. And we need to put on the new man, who we are in Jesus Christ. He tells us in chapter five, verse eight, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk or live as children of the light. In these last couple of chapters, he gives us so much practical instruction about how we are to live as children of the light, how we're to live in this world, how we're to live even in our workplaces, how we're to live in our homes with our husbands, with our wives. This book has the longest section dealing with the subject of marriage that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament, how we are to deal with our children. What we read in this book is that even our household should look different than the world because we're not filled with wine, but we're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God changes the way we live, the way we speak, the way we love, changes everything. Number six, Ephesians teaches us that we're at war with real spiritual enemies and we need the spiritual armor of God for this fight. You know, there are two mistakes that Christians, I believe, often make in this area. The first mistake some Christians make is that they get so comfortable in their earthly lives that they forget that this is not peacetime. And it will not be peacetime all the way until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. The Bible tells us very clearly that we are at war. That there is a spiritual war that is taking place all around us every day for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. 
There are some Christians, though, who don't make that first mistake. They do understand that we are at war, but they make a second mistake, a a different mistake, which is to forget or get confused about who our real enemy actually is. That there are some Christians who begin to think that other people, people who oppose the church or oppose our viewpoints are the enemy. But the Bible says that isn't actually the enemy at all. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood or any earthly enemy, but our war is against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness and the heavenly places. And because we are at war against such powerful spiritual enemies, Paul reminds us that every single day we need to put on the full armor of God. We need to be ready to stand. And the most important thing we can do in that battle is to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit to the commander of the army, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know, church, we know that our victory is assured because our God is able. One final key message in this book that I don't want us to miss. Paul tells us that we must know God's love. We must love one another and we must never lose our first love. You know, when you read Ephesians, it's quite obvious that Paul took to heart Jesus's words about what the two greatest commandments are. The command to love God with all our heart, the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that theme of love runs all the way throughout this letter. I think it's so beautiful what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter three, a prayer that he was praying for these believers. This is a prayer that we should be praying for the believers in our life. This is what Paul said. He said, I pray for you that that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Even though the love of God, he says, passes all knowledge, we can never understand actually just how much God loves us. What Paul is explaining there is that part of our growing as a believer is growing to understand how much God loves us. And as we grow to understand how much he loves us, his love fills us. And his love overflows us. And we begin to be able to walk in love with one another. Paul's letter to the Ephesian actually ends by talking about love. Look at the last two verses of the letter. He writes, peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And yet, despite how much love is stressed in this letter, and despite the fact that this church in Ephesus was led by and pastored by some of the most loving, incredible leaders that the church has ever had. Think about that for just a moment. Think about who pastored this church in Ephesus. First, the apostle Paul pastored them for the first three years. After that, Paul sent them his son in the faith, Timothy, that he said, no one is like my heart, as dear to my heart as my son Timothy is. He sent Timothy to them to be their pastor. Church tradition tells us that after Timothy pastored the church at Ephesus, that the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who there at the foot of the cross, Jesus entrusted his own mother to his care. The disciple John became their pastor. Think about that. These men that pastored the church at Ephesus, Paul, 
Timothy, and John. Incredible. A church that received this beautiful letter that we know as the letter to the Ephesians. And yet, do you know the last time that the church at Ephesus shows up in the Bible is in the book of Revelation. John was exiled to the island of Patmos where he received that revelation. Part of that was seven letters from Jesus to seven different churches. One of those churches was the church at Ephesus. And you can read the letter in Revelation chapter 2. Now, in that letter, Jesus does commend the church at Ephesus for many things. He commends them because of their doctrinal purity. He commends them because of their hard work, their labor serving the Lord. He commends them because of how they persevered in their faith. But then he says this to them in Revelation 2 verse 4. He said, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Brother, sister, let's make sure that we don't lose the same thing. Let's make sure that we don't become like the church at Ephesus that works very, very hard for the Lord, but loses our first love, loses our love for the Lord. Let's make sure we don't end up with a heart of cold orthodoxy. Let's make sure our hearts are always white hot with love for Jesus. And friend, today, if you know your heart and you know the condition of your heart, that it is not white hot for Jesus, that it's lukewarm or it's cooled to him, then you know what the Lord is calling you to do today, to turn back to him with all of your heart, to seek that intimate love relationship that he wants you to have with him. You know, as we close today, there is one phrase in those opening verses that we skipped over earlier. It's the actual greeting that Paul gives to these Christians in verse 2, his traditional greeting that we find in all of his letters. He writes, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes talks about how Paul formed that greeting. He took the traditional Greek greeting, which was rejoice. It's the Greek word care, and he changed it to a similar sounding Greek word charis, which means grace. And then he added to that the traditional Hebrew greeting of peace and gave the world, as one put it, this Christian greeting, grace and peace to you. But like Hughes explains, this greeting actually describes for us the way that the gospel works. Because when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know, the first thing that you receive is grace. Grace comes first. And when the grace of God comes into your life and forgives you and saves you and changes you, the Holy Spirit of God comes into your heart as well. And with the Holy Spirit of God comes the peace of God. Peace with him, reconciliation with him, reconciliation with others. Grace comes first and then peace. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul was writing these words to believers. He knew they had already experienced something of that grace and peace. But he's blessing them because he's saying, this is what I pray for you. This is what I want for you, that you might have more of that grace, that you might have more of that peace. And church, that's my prayer for us over these next few months as we study the letter of Ephesians, that we might have more grace and more peace, especially as we study the word of God and what it has to say to us. Maybe you're here today though, and you have not yet trusted in Christ and you've never received that grace. You don't have that peace that you know God that you'll be with him when you die. 
If that's you, friend, you don't have to leave this place in that same condition. The Lord loves you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you, to pay for all of your sin. And so I want to ask you in just a moment, if that's you, to come and speak with me or speak with one of the other pastors and just say, I I want that grace. I want that peace. I want to receive Christ. I want him to be my Lord and my Savior from this day on. Maybe you just need to come and pray with someone about something that's going on in your heart right now. You can come to any of the pastors that are here. We'd love to pray with you. And so let's stand together. Let's worship the Lord. You come if God is speaking to your heart.